Um, This morning, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, if you could turn there. I'm going to read the passage. This is going to be verses 1 through 3. Then I'm going to pray for our message this morning. This is Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. God, this morning we need to hear from you. We need to hear from your word, Lord. I, I just pray that I would be able to step out of the way, Lord, that you would speak this morning to your people. We thank you for your son, for sending him to to live, to die, to rise again for us, to save us, to rescue us from everything, um, Lord, that would destroy us. So God, right now, Lord, I just pray that our, our hearts would be united in faith, that we would Lord, take hold of the salvation, Lord, that you offer to us through Christ this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. When Cliff Young lined up to start the race, he couldn't help but see the many faces turning around and looking at him. He, in fact, probably heard some snickers from the other runners uh, who thought that he was one of, the, one of the people that came to watch the race that had kind of snuck in with the other runners. Cliff Young uh, was a 61-year-old uh, potato farmer from, Aust- from Australia, just outside of Melbourne. He was poor. He was simple. When he would run, he would take his, his teeth out of his mouth because they would rattle around in his head, and he didn't like that sensation. Uh, when he lined up to go run with these other runners, some of them semi-professional runners, this was an ultra marathon that they were about to run, 544 miles from Sydney, Australia to Melbourne. And he was the only jogger, uh, the only runner who didn't have the right clothes, who didn't look the part, who clearly seemed like he didn't belong. In fact, he actually wore pants. Everyone else wore shorts, but he wore pants and he poked holes in the pants for air conditioning, he said afterwards. <laughs> this was the kind of person that Cliff Young was. And so when the race started, uh, all the runners, they took off, they passed him. Some of them maybe cursed him as they ran around him because they they just needed to get by. Um, Before long, all the other runners were way beyond him over the horizon. But yet, Cliff Young continued to run. Now, in in a race this long, so usually it would take about seven days of running to run these 544 miles of this ultra marathon. And so the standard procedure would be to run for about 18 miles and then sleep for six, then get up, run eight for 18 more, sleep for six, 18 more, sleep for six. For about six or seven days, they would do this continuously. They would run, they would run, they would run. And everything was going according to plan for Cliff. He was just running, taking his time. He had kind of this awkward stride. Um, They actually called it sliding because 
when he would run, he would just kind of shuffle his feet and, and his arms would just kind of awkwardly hang down. And when he got to the first way station where he was going to, to rest and, take, and spend the night, um, there was a problem. A, a happy mistake happened that night. The person who was supposed to wake him up after five hours of sleeping uh, actually woke him up after just two hours of sleeping. Um, and so, but before they could realize that the mistake that they had made, Cliff was already off down the street running, um, continuing on his journey. And when Cliff realized that as he was running, he started to pass the other runners as they were sleeping. He had finally caught up to all these other runners and began to pass them. And so he thought in his mind, if as long as I keep running, as long as I don't stop, as long as I don't sleep, and I run through the darkness, run through the night, then I can win this race. And so Cliff Young did what for many people thought was impossible for a 61-year-old man to run for five consecutive days without stopping. On two hours of sleep, he finished the race and shattered the previous record for the ultramarathon by a day and a half. And so the man who nobody thought would finish the race, they didn't give him a chance. Because he kept running, because he kept moving, because he would not give up in the darkness, in the night, he finished the race. And he finished the race and won the prize. Uh, legend has it that he actually shared the prize with the other five runners who finished. Um, it was a $10,000 prize, and he gave all of it away to the other competitors. Um, and this was the kind of person that, that Cliff Young was known to be. And so his story is, is helpful for us to think as we read this passage. We're encouraged by the author of Hebrews to run the race of the Christian life with endurance. And just like his strategy, his kind of happy mistake of learning that the best way to win is to just keep running, to run through the darkness, run through the pain, the incredible pain and the suffering that he went through um, but he pushed past it and kept going. And that is exactly what we need to do in the Christian life as well. In the Christian life, we're not promised a bed of roses. We're not promised an easy uh, and, ha- and always happy ride. But the author of Hebrews is writing to a specific community, a Jewish Christian community. Um, and the message that he has for them is the message that we also need to hear is that in order to win the prize, we have to finish the race. And in order to to finish the race, we need to run with endurance. We need to run as if to win the race without stopping, without giving up. And so the audience of Hebrews uh, were being pressured by their society, being pressured by persecution to give up the race, to stop running, to go back, to, to throw in the towel, in the, ancient, in, the early, in the period of the early church, uh, the Jewish religion was recognized by the Roman government. The pagan religions were recognized by the Roman government. But the Christian religion was not recognized by the Roman government. And so if you were a Christian, and a specifically a Jewish Christian, you faced a lot of societal pressure from your community. You faced a lot of persecution. And it would have been easy for this community to go back or to maybe quiet down about Jesus and just kind of integrate back into their Jewish practices, their Jewish faith, and either forsake Jesus or to just quiet him down to just one of other things that they are doing um, within their their community life. Um, But the author of Hebrews wants to remind uh, his community 
this community that he's writing to. And he wants to remind us today that if we do not have Jesus, we do not have anything. That to have Jesus and anything else is to, is to suddenly lose Jesus himself. Jesus alone is what we need for salvation. Jesus alone is what we need um, to live um, and finish the race of the Christian life. And so the author of Hebrews is trying to teach us about the cadence of the Christian life. So when you're running, uh, you don't consider, you're not doing multiple actions when you're pumping your arms and, and lifting your legs, right? It's one movement, right? A fluid movement. But at the same time, you're pushing backwards, pushing back from where you were and lunging forward, right? So you're, in some sense, you're doing two actions, but they're simultaneous and at the same time and, and fluid. There's a cadence to it. And so in the Christian life, uh, he says, he gives us two, two things that we need to do. We need to lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and we need to run with endurance, looking to Jesus. And so the cadence of the Christian life is this, this dual action. There are two sides of the same coin. So they're, they're, they're not two distinct things, but they blend together. This resisting of sin and trusting and pressing into the promises of God. And so in order to, to endure, endure to the end, in order to run and make it through the darkness, through the pain, we need to run in freedom, and we need to run in faith. And so, first of all, we need to run in freedom. Uh, the verse begins, verse 1, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. So that, therefore, is connecting chapter 12 to what we read earlier in chapter 11, um, what is commonly known as the Hall of Faith. These are a list of stories or a list of uh, References to, to characters from the Old Testament, um, heroes who uh, basically followed this, this set pattern. They were given a promise. There was some obstacle or difficulty or, or opportunity to turn back or opportunity to, to, to sin. And yet they endured, they persevered, and they finished their race. That, that's the common theme throughout this list of, of characters like Moses and Abraham, um, Gideon, Samson. These are all people who were given promises, who had opportunity to turn back, who had opportunity to take the easy route and give in to doubt, um, to give in to temptation, and yet each one of them persevered in faith. And so we're to, therefore, um, let us also do what they did. We need to set aside every weight and sin, sin that clings closely to us. So now in the ancient world, there were two types of endurance races. There was one race that was about three miles long, uh, the marathon, which we know of today, the 26.2 mile run, uh, is actually a modern innovation uh, that we've only been doing for like the last maybe 120 years or so. Um, but in the ancient world, an endurance race would have been about a three mile run. Um, and there was actually two variations of it. One, they would always run uh, naked, so without any, any hindrances. And then the other variance of it was they would run naked, but they would run with armor on. They would have a helmet, they would have a shield, they would have greaves on their legs, and they would run. And it was, it was part of, it began as military training, but it evolved into this, this athletic event that people would pay money to see. And there was very uh, sophisticated training methods and, and different things. But what separated these two types of races from the normal sprint, the stadium, was the angle in which you would run. So when you're running a sprint, you run forward, you run lunging forward, but a sprint you run upright. Now imagine you lined up to run a race and everybody else, it's, it's a three mile race and you line up to run 
and you're the only one wearing armor. You wouldn't get very far, right? Everybody else would run much faster than you. And if you tried to run at the rate that everybody else is running at, you would collapse. You would give up. You wouldn't be able to do it. And so when he says, lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely, he's, he's having this, this image, this picture of setting aside things that are unnecessary, that are hindrances, that are only there to keep us from running the race successfully. And so at the, the root, sin, at the root of all sin, at, a, at the root of all unbelief is ultimately uh, the belief in one lie. Let's turn to Genesis 3 verse 1. Genesis 3, verse 1. So beginning uh, about halfway down through the verse, first verse. This is the serpent speaking to, to Eve in the garden. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat, we may eat of the, tree, the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But listen to what the serpent says in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. What was the first temptation? Was it, look at this delicious fruit. <coughs> there was delicious fruit all over the garden. Uh, there, there was just this one tree in the midst of the garden that they were not to touch, they were not to eat. And the temptation wasn't to take this, this forbidden fruit, it was to doubt that God actually had their best interests in mind. The first temptation was this lie, to believe this lie that God really doesn't love you. God really doesn't have your best interests in mind. He's withholding this from you. And so when Adam and Eve, they took of this fruit, they were doubting the love of God for them. They were doubting that God had their best interests in mind. And at the root of every sin, at the root of every disobedience, at the root of all unbelief, is this doubt, this, this questioning that God's way is not really my, the best way for me. What God's interests are, are, are not my best interests. And so um, when we read laws and instructions found in the Bible, when we read these thou shalt nots, our gut instinct is to think that God's withholding something from us, that God's trying to take away our freedom. But when God says thou shalt not, when he calls, calls us out to, to, to obedience, he's not restricting our freedom from things that that are good for us, but showing us the parameters from which human life was meant to be lived. Um, perhaps you've heard the, the parable of the monkey and the fish. Um, so a monkey was walking through the jungle and he came across a river. And he looked down into the river and was laughing at his re- reflection and he saw a fish struggling against the current of the river. And he looked down at the fish and he thought to himself, oh, this poor fish is really struggling in this river. I ought to help him. And so the monkey, he reaches down, grabs the fish, lays him on the grass, and says, there, you're free from the water. No, 
No worries. You're welcome. No need to thank me. And the monkey walks away. And the problem with that story is that that fish is only really free in the water. That's the environment in which the fish is actually truly free. And to actually liberate the fish from the water is to kill the fish. Right? The water is where the fish finds true freedom. But sin only provides the illusion of freedom for us. An addict who thinks that they are in control of their own choices eventually finds out how enslaved they really are only when they try to stop taking whatever it is they are addicted to. So it is with sin that when we realize how enslaving our sin is really, how, how enslaving our sin really is and how hard it really is to stop sinning, that's only when we realize how enslaved to sin we really are. And so in contrast to this sense of restriction, this lack of freedom that, that we feel like God is placing on us, like the fish in the water, when we are in the will of God, we are in the place of true freedom. Suddenly, it doesn't matter what the world thinks of us. We can follow God wherever he leads us. That is what true freedom is. Um, our old church in North Carolina, when they would baptize people, they would, they would go through the normal uh, process of confirming that they believe the gospel, that they believe the Trinity. Um, and then just before they would, they would baptize them, that they would put them into the water, they would ask them this question. Are you willing to go wherever God leads you? And are you willing to do whatever God calls you to do? And the answer for these new believers and the answer is the same answer that, that we ought to, to give today. Um, no matter how long we've been Christians, our answer should be yes. But the longer I find, um, the longer I, I go on and persist in the Christian life, the easier I find it is to insert caveats into that statement. God, I'm willing to follow you anywhere you call me to go except over there. God, I'm willing to do whatever you ask me to do, whatever you tell me to do, except all those things over there. Or as long as I can still do this, as long as I can still cling to this, as long as I can still live this comfortable life. And so to really, truly run the Christian life in freedom, we need to turn away from sin. We need to reject sin. We need to cast it off, run from it. But we also need to put our yes on the table to God. We need to remove any obstacle that keeps us from truly following him wherever he calls us to go. And that is the example that we see in chapter 11 with these heroes of the faith. These were people like Abraham, who was called to go to a different land, who didn't turn back to his homeland, to where it was easy. He went on to the, into the promised land that God was going to give him, even though he faced Opposition, even though he faced uncertainty, even though the way wasn't clear, he still moved forward. Um, we could say the same about Moses. He acted in faith. He embraced the promises of God and acted for, moved forward in faith. He, the example in, verse 11, uh, in chapter 11 is that he, he chose rather than to be called the son of Pharaoh. He refused to be called the, son of Pharaoh, called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So Moses, he turned away from the opportunity and the, the freedom that comes with, with what he could have enjoyed in Egypt and embraced um, the promises of God in leading the people out of, out of, out of slavery. And so... This, these, these pictures, these snapshots of faith, of running in faith that we see, of casting off sin, of resisting temptation um, that we see in all these uh, biblical characters in chapter 11, we also see in the model that we see in Christ.
So looking in, so we looked at running in freedom. Now let's look at running in faith. This is uh, the end of verse one. Let us also lay aside, uh, Hebrews 12, verse one. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So we looked at running in freedom, now running in faith. So the author of Hebrews tells us to look to Jesus. And as he does that, he's causing us to look at him in two ways, as both the object of our faith and the model of our faith. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the, the call of the author of Hebrews is to, repeatedly to, go, to not move beyond Christ, to not go back to life without Christ, um, to press in, to embrace uh, the gospel. He describes Jesus as the anchor of our soul. He is the thing that we lay hold of, the object of our faith that saves us. And if we reject so great a salvation, there is no hope for us. There is no other salvation other than salvation in Jesus. And so Jesus, uh, in this passage, he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's, there's, there's a couple different ways in which we could interpret those words, founder and perfecter. So founder can also be uh, translated as um, the author of our faith. Uh, some, some translations say author. Some translations say trailblazer. Some, some uh, Bible translations um, use what the ESV here has is founder. And the idea here is that Jesus is the one that we are looking to um, as the object of our faith, but he's also the model of our faith. He's the trailblazer. He's the one who perfects um, our faith as well. And so when the early church endured suffering for their faith, they rejoiced because they were sharing in the sufferings of Christ. They were like my son when he enjoys and, and loves to copy everything that I do. It's the funnest thing in the world to him. He, he has joy in doing that. Um, the early church, the apostles, they had joy when they, they saw that the pattern of life that they saw in Christ was the pattern of life that God was bringing into their lives, even though it meant suffering. And so we can look to Christ and see how he suffered for our sake without giving up, without giving in, and we can go through our own challenges and suffering and even persecution with joy. But Jesus is more than just a model for our faith. He is the object of our faith. So throughout the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage his audience not to shrink back from following Jesus, to go back to the Jewish sacrificial system or to the old covenant for the sake of escaping persecution was to reject the salvation that Jesus achieved. And so for us today, if we anchor our confidence, if Jesus is our sure and steadfast anchor before God, then we have reason to hope. If we forsake him as the object of our faith, we have no reason for hope. And so in the midst of our greatest struggles in life, we have nowhere else to turn but to Christ. This is John chapter 6, verse 40. So this is... uh, you turn there, John chapter 6, verse 40. This, this is an episode where Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is at the height of Jesus' popularity. He has just fed 5,000 people. 
countryside. And so now he has this, this mob, this crowd of people who are there just for the bread, just for the food, just for the benefits. Um, John chapter 6, verse 40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then when you skip down to verse, chapter 6, verse 60, when many of the disciples heard this message, when they heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? They were all happy with Jesus up until he started saying things that, that actually required real commitment from them. That wasn't just Jesus there to hand out food. Jesus there just to, to, just to heal. When Jesus actually made claims that, that made them uncomfortable, suddenly the crowds started to dissipate and they started to leave. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Verse 66. After this, many, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so this morning I want to ask you, is that your response to Jesus? Do you want to go a well as way? Do you want to go away as well? And is our response, Lord, to whom shall we go? Is Jesus your only hope? Are you living in true freedom and in, in, in true faith in Christ? Now, that, going back to that idea that, so the, the opposite of faith is unbelief. The idea that unbelief is actually doubting God's heart for us, that, that it is questioning that God, God's um, best intention, that God has our best intention, intentions in mind. Um, I have two questions for you. In the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your difficult times in the Christian life, how would you answer these two questions? Is God both sovereign and good? And the second one, I hope many of us, I hope all of us would answer, yes, is God both sovereign and good? Yes, he is. Is God sovereign and is he good in the midst of our struggles and our difficulties and in the darkness as we run? But the second question is a little bit harder. Will I trust him? First question, is God both sovereign and good? We can, we can assent to a theological belief. Yes, God is good. God is sovereign. We can hold to an idea but the, the real question is, okay, if that's true, will I trust him? Will I follow him into the darkness? Will I follow him when the Christian life isn't easy, when it is a struggle, when we do experience persecution, when we do experience um, um, the scorn of the people around us, when it does make our job more difficult when we're called the Christian guy, or when it, it damages our relationships to cling to Christ and, and we have a relationship with a family member or a friend who is not a believer and, and can't understand why we would, would be a Christian. Uh, and so the question this morning, if God is sovereign and good, will you trust him? This past three years in Japan uh, have been particularly difficult for us. It's been a, a season of, of struggles, a lot of struggles. Um, if many of you who were here when we, uh, just before we left, about four years ago, I think it was the last time we were here, uh, we were going to, moving to the city of Osaka, Osaka Japan. It's a city of about 19 million people, and we were going to start 
uh, we were joining a ministry that was a church planning ministry that was also going to be planning churches in downtown uh, Osaka. And so for us, this was like our dream career, our dream ministry, our dream, whatever you call it. This is what we felt God had been perfectly shaping us to do, to be involved in church planting, to, to, to see the church take root in this unreached people group in Japan, and to be involved in, in, in education. So the, our previous stint in Japan was in the city of Nagoya, and I was a teacher and, and felt that God really used me. One of the pictures in the video um, was from the past couple years, but it was actually one of my old students from back when we were in Nagoya who had become a Christian and was baptized. And so seeing the, the lives that I was able to impact through education and seeing and, and valuing how important new churches amongst an unreached people group were, we felt like this was the perfect ministry for us. This was called, our team is called the Genesis Team. And so we, you know, we, we were so excited. We got to the ground and almost, almost as soon as we got to Japan, we started facing trouble. We started facing both within our own family. We, we had health issues. We had struggles with learning the language, um, with stress. Um, the, the person who was going to be leading our team actually had to leave the ministry before we actually got to, to Osaka. And so even before we got there, things had started to unravel in this ministry, this dream ministry that we had. And so, long story short, over the next two years of our time in Osaka, um, through things that, that, through, you know, many of the ministries, you know, the, the cause of ministries failing is oftentimes not from the outside, it's from within. And so within our team, we had people who had struggles and, and couldn't get along with each other. And, and a lot of this caused our team to just fracture and fall apart. And as we were watching this, this dream of ours, this thing that we had many of you praying about and giving towards and, and we had invested so much of our lives in, we started seeing it unravel and in my heart, I couldn't take it. The stress, the anxiety, the need to fix this. How can I fix this? How can I get these two people back together? How can we move forward and still pull this off and still see this dream come to life? This thing that we worked so hard that we've stepped out. God, we stepped out to see you do this work. And yet here it is falling apart. And I, there, was, there was weeks where I would just go and there was nothing I could think of, nothing I could concentrate on, whether studying Japanese or anything else, but focus on this problem, this ministry that was, was falling apart, that we were a part of. And I wouldn't have answered this back then, but in the reality, what I was really feeling was this sense of dread that God was calling us away from that ministry, that God was calling us away from Japan. And in that moment, in that season, I did not trust God's intention for our lives. I did not really believe that if he was to call us, take us out of our home, we lose everything we have, we lose the ministry, lose all the work and the relationships that we've been investing in and the ministry that we have been doing and call us back here to nothing, that I, I had serious doubts that I was willing to follow that, that path if that's what he led us to do. And I was enslaved. I, lived, I went through a season of enslavement. Of, I needed freedom. I couldn't choose to follow the path wherever God was going to lead us. My yes that had gotten us to Japan, the yes on the table that had gotten us there, I had somehow, at some point, taken it off the table. And over time, I began to realize that God is sovereign, that he is good. And then, by his grace, he led me to trust him 
to lay all of it on the table and say, God, if you, whatever you call us to, whatever you lead us to do, we're going to follow you. And so at that moment, we ex- I experienced specifically, I struggled the most out of all of us, but at that moment, I experienced freedom. Freedom to leave behind the things that were holding me back from following Christ and freedom to move forward to whatever God was leading us to do. And so in the middle of our last term, we moved, we uprooted and moved to a completely different city. Um, we felt like God was leading us to do this drastic change, this drastic move. Our team had fallen apart and, and our ministry was changing in Osaka, but we felt like there was an opportunity and a move, movement of God's spirit to lead us to a city called Fukuoka. And that's where we, we have been the last year. And I, I share that, that, that struggle, I share that, that season of unbelief. It was a season of unbelief that, that I didn't really believe that God had, his, had the best intentions for my life. I had the best plan. And I was working and doing everything I could to see that plan work out and it was failing miserably. And I found freedom in giving it up to God. And so this morning, I just want to challenge you wherever you are, whatever you're doing, as you walk in the Christian life, as you go through the difficulties and struggles, there are going to be difficulties, there's going to be struggles, there's going to be opportunities to turn back, there's going to be opportunities to cling to pet sins. I want to encourage you to leave those things behind and pursue, move forward in Christ, embrace the promises of God, say no to sin, say no to unbelief, and press forward in belief, and press forward in obedience to Christ. Let's pray. God, we are are humble to think of all those saints who have come before us, who have run this race, who have faced severe persecution, some to the point of losing their lives. I think of the many Japanese Christians who, while they don't face physical persecution, they face social isolation, they face possible demotions at work, they they face losing relationships, losing their community, all for the sake of following you. Lord, I just pray that you would give us the faith, the hope, the joy to follow you into the dark places, to follow you, to run after you, even when it hurts, even when we can't see in front of us. Help us to just keep running. Jesus, you are the only thing worth living for. In you is true freedom. I pray this morning that we would all find freedom in you. In Jesus' name, amen.